This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. When interior designer Jana Rosenblatt had an 80-foot tree fall on her house, she saw the opportunity to create the customized home of her dreams. From Disaster to Dream Home provides you with the information and resources Jana wished she had during her rebuilding process. Now she's sharing with you the expertise of leading architects and home builders and the newest products and materials on the market. Here's your host, Jana Rosenblatt. Welcome back, home builders and remodelers. This is the second half of our two-part series on hiring a public adjuster to negotiate your settlement after a major property loss. To catch up on the process of how to get started, please check out last week's episode by going to www.fromdisastertodreamhome.com. Matt Goldstein, SPPA, is my guest again today. He is a licensed public adjuster with the Greenspan company, Adjusters International. This week, let's start with the evaluation of your coverage. Most mere mortals really do not understand the terms and conditions of their insurance policies. The coverage limitations, the valuation methods, filing methods required, and the time limitations. This is job security for you, Matt Goldstein. How many of your clients do you feel truly understand the coverages they carry? Very few. I think unless you're in the insurance industry or have gone through a claim before and know what you should, you know, know, know how to put together the proper policy, then very few, less than 10%. And how do you understand the policy language? I've uh, been reading policies like I read the newspaper for the past 30 years. I mean, you, one of the things, every, one of the misnomers is that every insurance policy is the same. Well, it's not every one of them is different. Every carrier has little nuances to their policies and different coverages and different allocations of funds that you have to read every single policy every single time. And we do sort of a coverage analysis. Uh, we have a small form that we use just for internal purposes. So we make sure we've covered all of the, uh, the little extras that you would find in your policy. Interesting. That might be an interesting thing for, um, for consumers to have some kind of checklist to know what they're looking for when they're um, purchasing a policy. But Well, yeah, mo you know, most homeowners, for example, I mean, they're looking at the their insurance for the building. They're looking at their insurance for the cost to replace their contents, plus possibly their living expenses, as we discussed on the last episode. But there's also, you know, smaller coverages for debris removal or, you know, code upgrades if your house isn't up to code. There's things that are built into a policy that people don't necessarily know are there. And, you know, the insurance company isn't always forthcoming with that knowledge because that saves them money if they don't pay it out. Yes, that is also job security for you. Um, the first yes. thing that you personally did um, after you visited our broken home was to gather all of our coverage documents and uh, read them. Um, something I didn't have the bandwidth to do at the time. Um, what does the process of evaluating the coverage include? Uh, reviewing the policy and, and, and sort of outlining, like we just said, you know, the, the building coverage, the content coverage, the living expense coverage, 
looking into any additional coverages that are afforded, you know, in the policy. Some homeowners policies have a small extension for electronics, or some have, if you have a home office, there's a little piece of money set aside for your home office equipment, things like that. So we'll go through and, and read the policy and outline what the coverages are based upon each individual claim. So we know what we should be asking for and what we should be invoking and what ne doesn't necessarily come into play from the policy. So you've uh, made it clear, I think, that uh, that every policy is written differently. And I'm and as a consumer, it's it's mind boggling to know what we really are getting, you know, are signing up for. Do you have any tips that we could use to understand our policies better? Um, you know, I don't know whether, for example, the California Department of Insurance on their website has sort of a basic, you know, how to read your insurance policy uh, thing. There are tips out there. I believe our website does have um, a research library that people can utilize, and it talks about policies, and there's articles that are written about homeowner policies and commercial policies and different situations and different disasters and how different claims are handled. So that's always a resource that people can use. Now, I've come to understand, uh, as I've been working more on the fire uh, areas um, in Southern California, that um, in the case of the recent fires that affected our, our clients and, other, and many other people, that they were underinsured to rebuild. How often do you find people are underinsured for the situations they find themselves in? Um, unfortunately, more often than not. And again, I think it's a situation of not necessarily knowing that proper valuations, not knowing what you're looking at, um, having an insurance policy that's been in effect for, for a number of years and not reviewing your coverage or updating your coverage, you know, things like that. Um, I can remember one of the, the clients that I represented in Montecito, you know, not to get specific with people, but they had a homeowner claim or they had a home and they had it insured for a certain amount of money. And actually as a result of the Northern California, the Napa fires that had happened just before the fires in Santa Barbara, the homeowner was smart enough to say, you know what, I don't think I have enough coverage. And he called his broker and doubled his policy right then and there. Um, his, his house was then wiped out, you know, three months later by the mudslide. So he was lucky that he had done that. Had he not done that, you know, he wouldn't have had enough insurance. Right. Um, there are times when people just don't know, and we have been successful in the past, especially in disasters, where we'll go back and take a look at the history of the insurance. And mm -hmm. if we find that the agent or the broker has never come out to the house or never offered more money or things like that, we can utilize that to increase the coverage right then and there. So if your home was destroyed and you hadn't, yeah. you know, your broker hadn't upped your limits in 10 years, you know, it's, it's very easy to make an argument that, you know, the broker was negligent for not doing something. And so the million dollars you had on your house that should have been 2 million, you know, we found ways to get that coverage instituted immediately. Yeah. So there is um, some responsibility for a constant um, revisiting of people's policies from the broker's um, aspect. Like it's, it's kind of part, you know, considered their job to keep you up, you know, on on what you need and how things change. Sure, there are. The problem is in today's, you know, quick society and internet society, you know, you buy an insurance policy through certain carriers, then it's all done online. 
Yeah. It's all done over the phone. You don't talk, you know, and you talk to an 800 number and it's someone at some part of the world who's, you know, taking your information and putting it into a computer and that computer algorithm spits out a policy for you. So there's no real human being that you're in touch with. So some, most of the larger carriers, the direct writer co companies, State Farm, all state farmers specifically, they have their own agents and those agents sell only their products and those agents should communicate with you on a regular basis yeah. and visit your property and see what improvements you've made or discuss your insurance coverages. If you hire a broker, I, the term private broker isn't correct, but a broker who will take your information and shop your insurance to a bunch of carriers to get you the best possible policy. Again, it's the broker's responsibility every year or two to check in. Hey, did you make any changes to your building? Yeah. You know, is your business still the same? Do you still have X amount of dollars in inventory or has your business grown and do you need to up your coverage? Yeah, so, and that's, um, that's actually, you, you bring up two important points there. Um, I recently had a client that um, had an incident and they had redone their kitchen six months before. They had just finished their kitchen. So of course we had a full accounting of what had just been done in the upgrade. So it's really important for people to keep track of the, the changes they've made so that if it's the insurance company's responsibility to, um, to help you um, because you've lost you know, your, your kitchen, wasn't supposed they they are not going to just repair your kitchen to the 1952 original they're going to have to bring it up to date to um what it was when it, you lost it correct yeah okay and that's something yeah so you know saving all those receipts and a record of what you do in addition to checking in with your insurance carrier is probably a good idea and the other thing that's interesting about um this is that the year that we moved into our house um, one of these giant eucalyptus trees fell on a house down the street, seriously injuring a woman, and they were out of their house for at least a year. And I immediately called my insurance um, broker because, you know, it was a person that I knew. And I said, listen, if a tree falls on my house, am I covered? And I did increase my insurance. I mean, I didn't plan on the tree falling on my house, but somehow I knew it always could. You know, there were five of them and um, they kept, you know, the wind was blowing them closer and closer. So, um, yeah, so that is an important part of the process is to watch what's going on around you and up, up the game if you have to. If a person is underinsured, what will be expected of them in the rebuild? Well, it sort of depends upon why they're underinsured. But if you have, you know, to use an example, if you've got a million dollar repair policy and your loss is $1.5 million, unfortunately, I mean, if you hadn't, Nine times out of 10, you're going to be responsible for coming up with those additional funds. I mean, your insurance company doesn't necessarily owe you anything above and beyond what the, the insurance you purchased. So then I guess your ultimate responsibility is, is whether you have a mortgage holder or whether you've owned your property outright. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that that necessarily comes into play. I would say that, you know, I would find that most people who have a mortgage on their home have better insurance because it, you have to sort of insure your mortgage. I don't, yeah. I certainly don't encourage people to, you know, if you own a million dollar home, that's the cost of the home. It doesn't necessarily cost that much to fix it or rebuild it. So a lot of times mortgage companies will come in when you buy a house and say, Oh, you only bought a half a million dollars of coverage. You don't have enough insurance. They're interested in you insuring the mortgage, which you don't necessarily need to do. You need to think about what's, 
if this house were to have a fire, what would be the cost to repair? So if it's less, then you can insure for less, which saves you a little bit of money. The, and the mortgage company can't force you into a value. Um, can a homeowner decide to pay off their mortgage and sell the lot if they're not able to be re to rebuild? Uh, if a homeowner, yeah, the homeowner can do whatever they want with the funds. Um, if there's a mortgage company, then the mortgage company will usually take some control of the money because they want to make sure that you reestablish the value in the home. You know, they're holding a note on your home that is worth X amount of dollars. And if you were to just take the money and run and leave them with, you know, they'd foreclose on you, but they'd also be left with a home that has, you know, half a million dollars worth of damage that they now have to come out of pocket for. So, Normally, a mortgage company will put that money into an escrow account and pay it out to your contractor and inspect the house and make sure that you are reestablishing the value in the home. You do have the option of taking the, the settlement funds and paying down or paying off the mortgage. And then you have, you know, you're left with the, the property in whatever state it's in. And, you know, it's yours to do with what you want. If you want to knock the house down and sell the land, great. If you want to fix it out of your pocket, that's up to you. You're not beholden to anyone. Okay, so there are um, there are options. Uh, to yeah, I don't I don't necessarily encourage people to pay off their mortgage unless you know. Depends upon it. Depends. It, it, it it's kind of a cost benefit ratio. If you've got a million dollar settlement and you owe the insurance company twenty five or sorry the mortgage company twenty five thousand dollars left on your note, by all means, I think that's a good investment to pay that off, and then you have control of your own money and you can do what you want when you want to do it to whatever extent you want. You know, if you've got a million dollar claim and a million dollar loan, then I don't know, you know, you have to sort of take a look at what your future goals are and how you want to, um, wh what you want to do. Do you want to rebuild the property? Do you want to have to come out of pocket to rebuild the property? Do you want to let the insurance company money rebuild the property for you? And then, you know, you've re you still have to pay your mortgage, but you still have that mortgage, but you have the value back in the property. The insurance company can build your prop, rebuild your property for you. Well, okay. That, that when I said the insurance funds uh -huh. can rebuild the property, yeah. meaning, um, I mean, I mean, there is a little known clause in an insurance policy, which I believe is still in some commercial policies, which is called, which which allows the insurance company to what they used to call invoke their option uh -huh. to rebuild the building, whereas. And I've seen this happen. I've, I've never seen it happen. I've heard a story about it once where um, I think it was a hotel fire and the insurance company and, and, and the insured. And I think Greenspan was involved, couldn't come to an agreement on the settlement. And there were millions and millions of dollars apart. And the insurance company said, you know what, we're going to invoke our option. We'll hand you the keys when we're done. And uh -huh. they hired, a, you know, they hired a contractor and they rebuilt the, they rebuilt the hotel. And Without, the insured just had yeah, to sit, yeah. sit back uh, and wait. And removing, I mean, they, right. they got whatever money they were entitled to, but they didn't get a lot of money. But then they still owned the property and maintained, and then went back in and yes. did their thing. Interesting. I believe so. Yes. Um, and and that you know brings up a question, which is the insurance company, of course, has um, contractors that they send in to do the pricing and get their their evaluation figured out. Um, but in my case, I knew so many contractors personally. I couldn't imagine using a stranger, even though they were perfectly nice guys. Um, I would really want it to use someone I knew. How often, you know, do do people, you know, just go with the insurance company's person? And is that easier? Would we have had less stumbles if we had gone with their contractor? Um, I think that 
people who are uninformed and people who are, you know, traumatized sometimes will simply say, okay, you know, thank you for sending out XYZ contractor, go ahead and fix the house. Uh-huh. And they don't get involved in the price of the house. And sometimes they, you know, that contractor takes advantage of the homeowner and or the insurance company in, in, in what they charge. I mean, the job still gets done. It still gets done right. But is the price that they're paying, I mean, they take advantage of the insurance policy and use it to the contractor's benefit and make sure that, you know, they, they get a good, they get a good deal out of it. So yeah. one of the things that we do is, I mean, we're going to go out and get our own contractor to come in and write our own bid to compare it to the insurance companies and, and to get the full amount, the proper settlement that they're entitled to. And then from there, the homeowner can choose whomever they want to make the repairs. In your instance, you knew people, so you could generate yourself basically and, and get the best price and use your own tradesmen. You know, a lot of times that happens. A lot of times people hire our contractors. A lot of times they hire someone else. It just depends. Every instance is sort of different. Okay. Um, then the next set of questions may be a bit out of your expertise, but you may be able to shine a bit of light on the process of securing and using the funds after the settlement is made. You've kind of started to talk a little bit about that stuff. Um, I understand the process can be different depending on the bank that holds your mortgage and or if you don't have a mortgage. I'm sure that this is so that we cannot walk away with the property, you know, from the property and travel the world with the money, which was absolutely a good idea at the time, but we didn't let ourselves do it. In our case, the funds were given to us um, to do the work um, on a percentage system. The insurance company gave the money to our mortgage holder and the mortgage holder doled it out in these um, increments that I felt like nobody who's ever built a house or rebuilt a house has ever seen what that schedule should look like. And, um, and the budget dollars were sent to both me and the contractor so that they had to be signed by both of us. And it was an extremely challenging and time-consuming um, aspect that caused a lot of delays in, the, in our alternate housing. Is what happened to us with the cash flow process typical? Uh, it is typical for a mortgage company to give it out in draws. Um, usually we see either one third, one third, and one third, or sometimes they'll do 50% up front, then 25 and 25. Um, most insurance companies will send an inspector. You know, we encourage people to use the 50% example to have your contractor call the mortgage company when they're getting close to the 50% completion so they can send an inspector out and you know, verify that, yes, this work's been done, this money's been spent, and they can release the next draw. Every mortgage company is different, so I can't speak to you know, how exactly they do it and how quickly they respond. Um, no mortgage company likes to give up money until the very last minute because they're making money on your money. But you know, eventually it gets done. But yes, I've heard of similar situations that you described where you know, it causes delays in getting the money released, um, you know, there are times when mortgage companies will keep uh, a 10% retention until the job is done just to get, guarantee that the job gets done. And that causes people to have to come out of pocket. I mean, there's lots of different instances and lots of different ways that it's done with a mortgage company. Everyone is different and most of them are, are complicated and annoying. And because the money now is gone from the insurance company to the mortgage company, that's not something you're in a position to negotiate. No. Or no. Yeah. That it just it is. No, what we, it is. We've negotiated. We've negotiated the settlement with the insurance company. Right. The mortgage company is named on the 
on, on the check as a condition of the insurance policy. Your insurance policy will have an additional loss payee clause that will name your mortgage company. And so that gives them the right to, to get named on the check and then they put the money into the escrow. And, and from there, you, I mean, you, a homeowner can negotiate with their mortgage company as to how much they're going to release sometimes depends upon the relationship. It depends upon, you know, how long you've been with the bank. It depends upon how much money you have in the bank. I mean, there's lots of different little nuances to it. Uh Um, But mostly they hold on to it and give it out in draws. Painfully so. Yeah. Yes. Um, Now is, is it the same? Well, it wouldn't be the same. So if there's no mortgage holder, if, if you own your property outright, then, then you're negotiating with the insurance company and how is that money dispersed? How differently does that process? Well, that's, that's simply a check written to, to you. Okay. That's yeah, it's, it's similar. I mean, when you, when, when, we, when you settle the contents portion of your claim, your mortgage company doesn't own your contents. So you're, they're, they're not named on, on the check. Um, so it's similar to that. If you have no mortgage company, then the check just comes to you and you, you, you're, in, you're responsible for keeping an eye on the contractor, making sure he's done what he says he's done and for paying the contract and right. or not in your house and traveling the world with the money. Right. Exactly. That, uh, that's exactly yeah. where my head just went. I'm like, what could I see with that money in the world? Um, and then, you know, be homeless, but at least I will have had life experiences. Um, and, and is there any differences in the way um, the money process is handled or uh, if it's, if it's a mudslide or a hurricane or a fire or a tree? Um, no, all, all, all of the payouts and all the claims are usually handled the same way. And is there any way to help us understand the inspection, the inspection system for determining the work that has been done um, to free up the next amount of funds? Do you, I mean, that is the vaguest, most um, frustrating thing in the entire world. It's, it seems completely arbitrary and it truly just depends on on whether the um, person visiting your home had a donut with their coffee in the morning or only had the coffee and not the sugar. I would agree. I've, I've heard horror stories of contractors calling for a mortgage inspection saying that they're 50% done and the guy comes out and says, well, I think you're only 46% done, so I'm not giving you any more money. You know, call me in two weeks. You have to pay the mortgage company an inspection fee, from what I understand. Some, some mortgage companies charge $500 to send their inspector out. Um, yeah, we had. A I'm pay, not from. Yeah, we had to pay for the inspection visits. Um, right. But also, I mean, is that like, is there a published pu- published list that would help us understand, you know, what they expect to see at fifty percent? And I mean, it just seemed unbelievably vague. Yeah, that's not something that we normally get involved in. Once yeah. the funds are turned over to the homeowner and or the mortgage company, that's sort of between, uh, you know, the mortgage company and the contractor. So that would be a good question for a contractor. I, I wouldn't have the answer to that. So then if it's a total loss, you're certainly not dealing with any of that. I mean, you, because they're giving you the money. So your responsibility then to make sure that the work is getting done um, sufficiently enough to be paying your contractor regularly. Well, when you say a total loss, I mean, you, you, your two situations are oh, either- a total loss with mortgage no mortgage, company. right. Oh, with no mortgage, right, yeah. So if there's no mortgage company then Again, yeah, you're in charge of the funds, your own funds, and it's up to you to pay your contractor. Yeah. 
And um, do you know anything about construction loans? If, if there's no property um, existing to be evaluated? I know um, we wanted to be able to do a little extra work. And so I looked for some funds and um, because my house looked okay from the one, uh, we had a, we fixed the house in front cosmetically before we continued in order to get a, a, you know, a small loan to be able to do a little bit of extra work. Um, do you know how that works? No, I don't. That's beyond what we would normally do. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta find someone to talk about that stuff. The whole banking thing is mind boggling. Um, we want to take the opportunity uh, while we were uh, out of our home to make some additional structural improvements, as I was saying. Um, what are we typically allowed to do? I'm sorry, I'm not sure that I understand that question. Um, you know, we, we, um, we actually opened a wall and we you know, redesigned the interior of our home. While we were out of the home, it made you sure. know, complete sense if we were ever going to do um, extra work that we do it then. Um, so what are the rules? What are we allowed to do? There, there really are no rules. I mean, the, the, as long you know, a mortgage company, again, is going to look at you putting the, fun, the value back into the home. You know, they're, they're holding a note for X amount of dollars, so they want to make sure that you spend the money and put it back into the home and fix the home and reestablish the value. Um, the insurance company doesn't necessarily care what you do as long as you put the money back into the home. So if you want to, if you have... If you have the ability to take the funds and, you know, build an extension on the house or put in a pool, I mean, that's really up to you. How you use the funds is up to you as long as you technically use them to fix the house. Um, and that's how I operated with that understanding. But I did find that the insurance company's um, adjuster that they sent in, um, that it made him um, skeptical of our process. And I was not, I mean, I've never tried to hide anything from the process from him. Um, but it did make it so that uh, I felt like he was, you know, questioning. Well, the fact that it took a long time because of the money process and because of the negotiation process um, to be able to get the work started, that it made it harder for you to negotiate us being out of the house longer. That he then was attributing the extra things we were doing, which was not what was causing the time difference. So does that kind of put an adversarial aspect to the work? Yes, sometimes, especially when it comes to, to the, well, well, there's two factors there. One, it's the living expenses. And if he sees that you're making wholesale improvements to the house that weren't there before, and that they look at that as possibly extending the time of repairs and they don't owe you for that. They owe you to, the time to put back the house the way it was. It's also an issue with negotiating the settlement of the building claim. Um, if we are asking for significantly more than what the insurance company is willing to offer, even if the scopes appear to be the same, if for some reason the insurance company understands that you want to add, you know, two rooms to the house, that they're going to dig their heels in and say, well, you really don't need that extra $25,000 because my price is too low. You need that $25,000 because you're adding stuff onto the house. So you're insured for what you had previously at replacement cost. So that's the overall goal. And then how you use those funds is really up to you. So I always encourage people to not necessarily discuss changes or upgrades that you want to make to your house with the insurance company, keep that to yourself. And once the claim is settled, then you can figure out how you, you know, you can vocalize to your contractor how you want to fix the house. Yeah. So I guess the only, so we have settled our, our, um, pretty much first before we'd started the work. 
Um, but it was, uh, then we did have some additional negotiation to do. So I see where that got complicated. And I almost fell into the same tight spot that many of my clients do, which was to take the circumstances and, and possibly overbuild. We were considering an addition. And I came to my senses at a certain point and cut back on some of our plans. Um, do you ever need to, you know, kind of rein in your clients and bring them back to reality of what they can and should do under the circumstances because you're being kind of watched by the insurance company? Yes, we, co we call it adjusting the client. Adjusting um, the client, yeah. Adjusting the client, That's yeah. You have, you have to, there are people who look at, and let's back up and let me say that before I came back to Southern California six years ago, I ran our Las Vegas office for 15 years, starting in 2001. I found that everyone in Las Vegas is looking for a deal. Everybody's got an angle. It's sort of a so cliche for that hard. city, but it's true. Yeah. Everybody's looking at the insurance policy and the insurance claim as a windfall to them. And how can they take advantage of someone? There is that mentality in Southern California as well, but not to the same extent. Um, but there are times that people look at an insurance claim as a windfall and how they can turn their, you know, small one bedroom house into a McMansion. And you really have to understand that you're insured for what you had and not for what you want. And within reason, we're going to settle your claim and we're not going to, you know, I personally am not going to commit insurance fraud for anyone. Um, I, I don't particularly want to go to jail and lose my license. So, you know, there are times when you have clients who have unreal expectations that you have to adjust their expectations. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a recent um, project that I'm being interviewed for uh, where they, these people feel that they're really um, in a tight place financially. Um, it's a Malibu fire total loss. And they designed a multi-million dollar home. Well, they could have been, you know, designed a $1.5 million home and then afforded me, you know, to be able to provide the services to rebuild the interior of the home. So they're, you know, negotiating with me because they're afraid they're out of money. And, you know, someone, I, I wish I had known them much earlier. I mean, you, you just don't have to build triple the size of your home. You, you just have to build something you're gonna love. Exactly. Um, after the house was secured and we were housed, uh, the next step was negotiating the settlement. Um, after the property is stabilized and the scope of work is determined, what is the actual negotiation process for the settlement? Both sides would exchange estimates and, and take a look and see why, how close together we are and identify the areas of dispute, whether it's pricing for finished work or, or, or labor or square footages that are, that are different or you know, we feel that the flooring has to be replaced and the insurance company says, oh no, you can fix the flooring. It's sort of things like that are determined in the scope. And then there's a negotiation that goes on until everyone agrees, or at least we do our best to reach a settlement with the insurance company. We present that, you know, to our client and our client will accept it or say, no, I think you, we need to go back and do a little bit more and we'll go back and forth until the, the homeowner or, or the insured is happy. And, and the insurance company's happy and a settlement is achieved. So, and during that process, who are you talking to? My adjuster, the, the, the adjuster from the insurance company? Like I'm talking adjuster, to everyone. I, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm talking to the insurance adjuster. I'm talking to the contractors. I'm talking to my client. You know, we're trying to find a happy medium for everyone. So I've got an adjuster who feels that we're asking for too much money. I've got a homeowner who wants their home put back perfectly. 
I've got a contractor who knows how much it's going to cost to rebuild the house. And he wants to make a little bit of money on it also. So we've got to mesh all three of that, those things into one comprehensive settlement. So, and on the insurance company side, is it actually the, the adjuster that comes to the house that does the, that you're negotiating with? Yes. Okay. So he's really responsible for my outcome, like the guy that you actually see that comes to the house. Correct. Um, how are the differences between what we felt we should be uh, have you know, and be covered for and the insurance company's interpretations negotiated? Um, you had um, a, a guy that came out that did kind of did a budgeting that wasn't a contractor and wasn't an auditor. What, tell us about that guy. Uh, I think in your situation, we use an estimator yeah. who's a licensed contractor, uh -huh. doesn't necessarily look to rebuild a property, but he is a contractor and he utilizes, you know, the, the computer programs that, that, that we use for estimating and he prepares an estimate for the repairs. So it's similar, it's similar to a license, a contractor. It's just someone who's not necessarily looking for a job. Um, if a homeowner feels that they have their own contractor, they want to use them. We'll just bring in an estimator as okay. opposed to I see. a contractor. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so the Greenspan Company website says that you should not proceed with the permanent work until you have an agreement. We lost a couple of months to the process of valuation and negotiation, which increased the month we were, had available to be housed. At a certain point, you felt that we needed to get the work started before the replacement of our kitchen was negotiated. And we expected to be able to also negotiate some funds for the repair of our landscaping um, during the process. How far along do you usually get in the negotiations and settlement before you suggest the work get started? It sort of depends upon the situation. Every claim is kind of different. Um, you know, I always encourage people to clean up the house, secure the house. If there's demolition and debris removal that needs to be done, that's something that's important to do right away because depending upon where the building is, it could be, we call it an attractive nuisance. You know, you'll get looters who will go in there. You know, I've got commercial buildings in downtown LA that, you know, you're running off people every day who are going in there trying to steal the copper or steal the debris because they can make money on that. Um, and you don't want to have an unsafe situation. So that sort of stuff you want to do as quickly as possible. From there, you know, we get an estimate put together and we negotiate a claim. It's never our intention to extend a negotiation or make it take longer than it should. Sometimes, depending upon the insurance company, the insurance adjuster, the coverages, there's a lot of factors that dictate how long a, settle, a settlement takes to negotiate. Um, there are times when, yes, I will encourage someone while we're in the process of getting something done to start work. Yeah. I can think of a situation now where I've got an insurance company who's taking an extended period of time in responding with an estimate, but the homeowner is, is anxious to get back in his home. So we've had, you know, the demolition done. We've had the framing, we, we, the numbers on areas of things that we're not too far apart on. We've had the framing redone. The roof is getting done. These are things that we've agreed with the insurance companies that need to be done. We may have to go back and negotiate a price later, but it's okay to get that started to keep the ball rolling. Yeah, we actually had, um, we had some small fuzzy looters in our house. It, we used to get here in the morning and there would be raccoon tracks inside. And it took us a couple of days to, or maybe longer to figure out that we had left the cat door. We hadn't 
placed the permanent closure in our cat door. So we had um, little fuzzy raccoons that lived in our house while we were gone. Uh, the fee structure for your services was based on, on the amount of our settlement. Can you explain to us how that works? Sure. We charge a percentage of what we recover on your behalf. Uh, that percentage varies depending upon the size of the claim. Um, there's other factors involved, but essentially it's, 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 it's negotiable based upon the size of the claim is the easiest way to put it. And and the contingency fee, we don't take money up front. There's no expenses that you're charged for. Um, if you, if we, for some reason, don't recover anything or your claim is denied, then, you know, you don't owe us any money. And is there um, an, a dollar amount at which a person should look for a, a public adjuster and versus which, you know, under which it doesn't really pay, it doesn't pay out? Um, I mean, I... Yeah. I would always encourage someone to consult with a professional uh -huh. in any, in any instance. Um, am I going to, is Greenspan going to take on, you know, a small $10,000, you know, water loss when you've got a $2,500 deductible? Probably not because it doesn't pay for our service. You uh -huh. know, we're going to have to charge such a fee that at the end of the day, you're going to pay us more money than you're going to have left over. And then you're not going to be able to fix your house or right. your business. And that's, that's, we're not in the business of that. We're not in the business of this to make money. We're, I mean, we love to make money. Sure. But at the same time, we're also here as an advocate and we want to make sure that, that, that our clients are able to reestablish their lives and, and, and our, our cost is minimal or, or of no impact to them because we increase the settlement to the extent that, you know, we pay for ourselves. Yeah, I can, uh, I can personally attest to the fact that you legitimately um, helped us um, you know, significantly increase our claim, rightfully so, um, from what it was first proposed by the insurance company. How often is that the case where you're um, more than able to earn, you know, uh, increase to the point that you're covered? Oh, every time. That's, yeah. that's our goal in every situation. I mean, we're pretty good at, at evaluating something before we even go into it especially when we can see the insurance policy. Um, I mean, you can take a look at a, a large industrial fire and kind of know how much the cover, if we can take a look at the policy and see how much coverage is, and we can have a pretty good understanding of the value of that claim before we get started. So we can figure out what's a fair percentage that we can charge and make some money and make sure that the business owner, the building owner has the ability to reestablish themselves as if the, the incident never happened. And, and if it's, you know, there are, there, there are good public adjusters and there's bad public adjusters. I mean, I think it's that way in any industry. And yes, there are people in my industry who will go out and take a, you know, you know, charge you next to nothing, but then they're not, they're going to put forth that effort. Or at the same time, you're going to have people who overcharge when they should take advantage of people. So one of the things that we're, we're, we're our reputation is that we're very fair and we make sure that, you know, everybody ends up equally at the end. So Matt, is the insurance company glad that I called you or do they not want a public adjuster on the project? I would say the majority of the time they're not happy that we're involved because they know that we are going to utilize every aspect of the policy and, you know, get the homeowner or the business owner everything that they're entitled to. Um, there are times, depending upon the size of the claim and the level of the adjuster, where there's a mutual respect 
um, the larger claims that I tend to handle, you get larger level adjusters who as much experience as, as I do. And they appreciate the fact that we're involved because they may have, whereas I may have 40 or 50 active clients, most insurance adjusters have closer to hundred to 200. So they have a lot going on. And if they know that I'm involved, I'm going to do all the work for them. I'm going to put together the estimates and I'm going to put together the claim. So when I hand it to them and they know our reputation is that we're going to do it right the first time that they are happy that we've done their job for them and they just simply need to review it and, and rubber stamp it and it's done. Um, nine times out of 10 though, it's adversarial. They're, they're not happy. But again, that yeah. depends upon the carrier. It depends upon the experience of the insurance adjuster, what they've experienced in the past. I mean, again, there's, there's good public adjusters and there's bad public adjusters. And there's some people who leave a bad taste in the insurance company's mouth and that sort of taints the business for everyone. So my tip in, in closing this uh, segment of the discussion is that your services were well um, enhanced what we were able to do and, uh, and got us through a horribly challenging time. Um, and my other tip to people is to be careful with your funds and to stay realistic about what you can accomplish with what you settle on. Do you have any final words of the wise to share? Uh I, uh, yeah, I mean, understanding that a claim, it, it, it's a traumatic experience and, and people tend to make some rash decisions sometimes and um, people need to think about what the, what's going on in their lives. I mean, one of the unfortunate situations, and I don't know if it happened to you or not, is, I mean, when you have a loss, especially a fire and it's public because it's on the news and things like that, people are bombarded with people from our industry, whether it's contractors or public adjusters, that's just how it works. And sometimes people make a rash decision and they don't think it through and they want people to go away. So they just sign a contract and, and, and that's that. I always encourage people to think about the process, wait, you know, study, go, go to websites, look at the people. If it's a contractor, look at their, you know, reviews on, on Yelp and look at reviews on the contractor's board, make sure people don't have complaints filed against them. Same thing with public adjusters. I mean, we have a website, we have Yelp reviews, um, we have better business bureau reviews. I think you can probably go to the Department of Insurance since we're all licensed in the state of California and take a look at our licenses and make sure we're in good standing. So do your research and ask questions. And you know, there's no dumb questions. People don't know what's going on. Ask a question. Yeah. You've never experienced this and this is what I do on a daily basis. Yeah, I so say that to We understand how to help yeah. and, and yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, and I think also personal recommendations is really important. I mean, you don't know it, who in your circle might have experienced uh, working with a public adjuster. You were personally uh, recommended to me by a builder that I trusted and and that helped me considerably, although I certainly did a little bit of, of research at the time. And, um, and, and I'm so glad that you were on our side. Um, I want everyone to know that if they have any additional questions about a property loss they're are experiencing the contact information for the Greenspan Company Adjusters International is on our website and um, you can check out their website. Um, our website is from disastertodreamhome.com and you can click right onto their website from there. Um, thank you for your guidance through my personal insurance claim and thank you so much for your time and expertise for our listeners. You're very welcome, Jen. It was lovely to see you and I'm glad you're back in your home and seemingly happy. It's um, unbelievable what we actually accomplished. And, the, and every year it becomes 
more and more of a distant memory. And as long as the other two trees that are in front of my house don't fall, I hope not to need your services. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't want, I don't, I don't particularly care for repeat customers when it comes to homeowners. <laughs> yeah. You can have one incident and that's it. Yeah, that's, that's a good policy. All yeah. right. Thanks a lot, Matt. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. Each week, we bring you time-tested practices and the latest trends through conversations with top professionals in the building industry. You can find other episodes of From Disaster to Dream Home at EWNPodcastNetwork.com, as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, and most other major podcast streaming services. Need design help? You can contact us or find out more about our guests at fromdisastertodreamhome.com. Until next time, let us guide and inspire you as you create the home of your dreams. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.